Today, we talked to Matthew Perone, who's a journalist at the Associated Press. I'd never written for, you know, a national daily publication. I had no business even stepping foot in the AP. You don't know you can do something till you're sort of sink or swim. You're just sort of dropped into it. Even in the world of clickbait, Matthew is still able to do what you might call traditional journalism. The information is moving so fast, but the flip side to that is having in-depth stories that no one else has is also more important than ever. We also chat about his story revolving the NFL in the concussion controversy. I got a call from a source basically asking if, uh, you know, if I'd be interested in, in learning about what the NFL was doing about concussions. Uh, you know, the story, it was one of these stories that just had layers and layers. Media on the Radio is a podcast that features conversations with media professionals. Everyone from creators of media to those who do the marketing and distribution. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. This is just background for me. You went to undergrad where? I went to undergrad at George Washington University here in D.C. And did you get a master's degree or you just have an undergrad? No. I, I don't I, know why I just assumed. No, don't have a don't have a master's. You just I'm seem just... like one of those people that have a master's oh, degree. Oh, you're that, you're that intelligent. Um, <laughs> it's all a lie. It's all a lie. Just, you know, squeaked by with, with basic bachelors. Can you talk a little bit about what the program was like, what your college experience was like? You know, I mean, t- to be honest, looking back, I mean, GW had had excellent facilities. We had great professors. At the time, they shot the CNN show Crossfire there, so you, mm. you definitely mm-hmm. had access to these people. Looking back, I almost wonder if it wasn't a bit more like bells and whistles than actual content. But, you know, to, to give GW credit, you know, I did get to study and work with working journalists, people who'd you know, been at, uh, you know, places like the New York Times and Business Week, et cetera. If you could have projected into the future your mind's eye in college, what was your target? Did you have a target as where you'd working, what you would be working on? That That's a great, <laughs> I really should have had a target. I definitely should have had a target. <laughs> but to be honest, just thinking about where I was going to land when this was all over was really terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. I had a lot of professors in, in, at the time who told me, well, you know, journalism, you got to spend, you know, you're going to waste your 20s moving around from like mid-tier newspapers somewhere in the Midwest, you know, you'll be in Albuquerque mm-hmm. or Kansas City. Go to a smaller market first. Right, right. right. Got to start in a smaller market. Exactly. Um, so to be honest, I mean, if I really thought it through, I, I, I'd probably imagine that, uh, you know, again, I, I'd be working at one of those, um, you know, quality, but but sort of mid-tier newspapers somewhere in, in middle America. Were you focused on writing as opposed to another form of journalism? Really, the only thing I've ever been good at, the only thing I've ever been able to do is, is write. You know, there, there's a plus side to that. It sort of limits your options. So realistically, I probably should have known that I, I was going to wind up in, in print and, and writing. I'm curious to know, because we talk a lot about <clears throat> the change in media, not, not only the change in journalism from print to the web, but also the change in the way in which the story is constructed and distributed. Was that hinted at at all in your college career? Was any of that, the, the kind of the new paradigm shift, were they talking about that? It was just starting to, to dribble its way into the curriculum. I think I took one class in online journalism where you actually had to like do a tiny amount of programming and, and make a website, uh, which, which was good. But, you know, at the same time, we had a class on uh, 
you know, newspaper layout where we were still using, you know, this is something your listeners will never remember. The, they were called pikas. They're the units of measurement mm, for new. Yeah. Like, so t- learning how to use pica rules, you know, obviously I never used that. It was completely worthless. So um, they were just starting to get the hang of, you know, the idea that the internet might be important someday. <laughs> so what about, you said you worked at CNN. Is it during your college career or th- is it after? Uh, So I did wind up getting a pretty cool internship at CNN's documentary division when I was a senior. Uh, Got to work on this this political documentary that got nominated for an Emmy, and and I managed to convince myself that yeah, I mean this this CNN thing is pretty cool. I can do this, but you know after graduation, I you know my internship was over. I was out of the documentary department. I was just sort of dropped into the main CNN newsroom. And, and, you know, those beginning jobs, I mean, it's essentially you're, you're a gopher. So I was, you know, pinning microphones on people. I was bringing them scripts. I was getting bottles of water. Wolf Blitzer would come in every day and, and hey, Wolf, how you doing? And you'd roll the teleprompter for him. Um, it, it was a lot of sort of gopher tasks. You know, some of them I was good at. Some of them I, I wasn't that great at. And uh, I probably wasn't doing a whole lot of journalism. So... Um, eventually I figured out that, you know, this probably wasn't the, the long-term path for me. You said you got kind of pushed out of the CNN job? How did- yeah, I mean, so this is going to sound so dumb. I mean, when, when I was initially hired, you know, I was working at least 40 hours a week, 45 hours. Um, you know, to me, I felt like, you know, I, I almost didn't know any better. I felt like, oh, this is a full-time job. This is, I've got a full-time job. What I really was, I realized over time, was was sort of a glorified freelancer. I really didn't have any job security. I didn't have any, you know, health benefits, for example. Um, and, and that was sort of a, a method that CNN used to, you know, they have a lot of work hours they need to fill, a lot of programming, obviously, to just sort of, so they just ke- sort of kept people on the line. And, you know, as I spent more time there and realized it wasn't really for me, you know, my hours started getting cut back. And, uh, you know, eventually the, the message kind of came through that, you know, I probably need to start looking elsewhere. It's interesting because I've heard of different outlets that have really strong brand recognition are able to kind of pull that off with the amount of people that are that are just happy to be in the door because of because it's called CNN or um, ESPN. Absolutely. Like that, where there, there's there's about 100 people at the door with it with a resume waiting to kind of walk into that position and, and do the job. Um, but at the same time, they're, they're, they're operating huge, they're, they're huge operations that, right. that are a machine and need a lot of kind of labor to kind of keep the fire going. Absolutely. So, so that's kind of what you're getting into and what you're signing up for, right, I think in right. a lot of ways. Uh, s- speaking of that, was there, what, what, what brought you to the AP? So you're, you're you now, you currently work at the Associated Press, and you've been there for quite some time. How did you get into the job? You know, I, I left CNN. I worked at a small newspaper. I worked at. I wound up working at sort of a small, uh, you know, I call it a health trade publication. Um, and you know, in this business, we we like to think that it's it's all about talent and hard work. And if you you know, eventually someone will just like realize how great you are and and you know to an extent that that's true you have to be ready when opportunity knocks but you know everyone in this business i think you know eventually they just they just get an opportunity you know they somebody just drops a great opportunity in their lap and so 
Uh, for me, it came, I guess, in 2006. I got a call from one of my former GW professors. Uh, she wasn't a full-time professor. She only taught one class. And, you know, long story short, she was hiring at the AP. She needed someone with a health background. You know, to be honest, at that point, I'd been out of school barely two years. I'd never written for, you know, a national daily publication. I had no business even stepping foot in the AP. But again, you know, you don't know you can do something till you're sort of sink or swim. You're just sort of dropped into it. So I, I went, I took the writing test, I got hired, and... Um, you know, there there were some rough, uh, you know, <laughs> rough moments in the, in the first couple months, but but eventually, uh, you know, I, I I'm. Can you I'm talk? A, can you talk a little bit about what the writing tests entail? Was it really intensive, or was it just like a stock test that they give everybody? There are rumors about the the AP writing test and how incredibly difficult it is, and that's what I went in expecting to take. Um, you know, you basically have to draw a map of like Eastern Europe. You know, they give you. Uh, you know, uh, 14 facts and you have to arrange them into a 300 word story in like, you know, five minutes. You know, that's what I was expecting. Uh, Fortunately for me, um, the job I was interviewing for was more, a little more specialized. It was on the business desk. So having come from a trade publication covering companies, it was, it was more, uh, you know, do you know how to read an earnings balance sheet? Do you know how to look up company details, SEC filings, that sort of thing? And and I did actually know how to do that. So so I got lucky on that one. You know, we've, we had a show here at Arlington Independent Media about the change from print journalism to journalism being put onto the web in some form. And, you know, you're moving from New York Times as a print versus New York Times on a web page. But now we're into a situation, a transition where it's all moving from the web to social media. And can you talk a little bit about what that's been like um, from the AP's perspective, because they're trying to feed all of these different outlets, um, and then what your professional, personal take has been? At the AP, we have something called the Nerve Center, which was created uh, just a few years ago. And, And the idea is that this is a group of people in New York who are monitoring Twitter, Facebook, social media, looking at, you know, what are the trending stories, you know, they respond to that, you know, hey, people are really interested in, you know, pharma bro guy who raised the price of this drug 5,000%. So, you know, 10 years ago, that might have been something that we wouldn't have covered. It, you know, it would have been a one-shot story, but somehow it went viral on Facebook. People got really mad about it, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, we're writing seven, eight hundred word stories about it. You know, as a reporter, it can be it can be a little challenging. It can make your life a little more hectic. You thought you were going to do one thing with a story, then all of a sudden you're told, uh, "We want to hear more about this." People are tweeting about that. You know, in, th- in this business, you're you're only as good as what people want to read, what people are interested in. So you have to respond to your audience, and and I guess uh, that audience is more fickle and and you know, changes more frequently. Knowing what I know about you and the work that you do at the AP, it sounds like you're still given somewhat of an opportunity to really develop stories from scratch and do kind of a a more thorough investigation of a story that no one's talking about. And I think that content is king or whatever else. But when you have all these different outlets essentially putting out the same story, uh, Gawker, BuzzFeed, New York Times, Washington Post, all of the time 
kind of trying to chase that, you know, every hour there's a new kind of hit on social media. Everything you're saying is, is right on. I mean, it's, it's really counterintuitive because you think, you know, there's so many websites, there's so many people posting blogs, you know, information is moving so fast, you think that the AP would have to just, you know, speed up faster, faster, faster. And to extent, we are doing that, but, but it's, it's almost counterintuitive. The flip side to that is having exclusive in-depth stories that no one else has is is also more important than ever because you know by the time you and I get off work you know we've been surfing the web so much we've been on twitter we already know all the news that's out there we you know so so to remain relevant uh you know ap has has realized i think rightly that that you need to give people uh, the freedom to go off and, and do these more investigative projects and find things that other people weren't looking for. So for me this past year, um, that was this story about doctors running what are called stem cell clinics uh, with the idea being that they're going to inject you with uh, these specialized stem cells that, I mean, it's really almost snake oil. I mean, they claim it can fix anything from uh, Alzheimer's to uh, Parkinson's to, you know, receding hairline. But, you know, this was something that had sort of slipped through the cracks. It was very popular in places that, you know, maybe a, a reporter like myself wouldn't go typically, Palm Beach, Florida, Beverly Hills, Los Angeles. Um, so, so it hadn't been reported. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, the AP let me fly down to some of those places, actually meet these doctors. I, I think some who maybe aren't used to being interviewed. They're very, uh, uh, you know, off the cuff, uh, laissez-faire with what they're willing to talk about, which they're probably not that happy about now. But um, it wound up, you know, being a great story basically about uh, this sort of underground industry that sprung up from from doctors offering people, you know, what they say is life-saving medicine. Because this is geared towards people in college, can you talk a little bit about your process of how you know, do you bring these stories to your editors and say, look, I've been ki- kicking around this idea. I think we should go after this. And then how do you take it from there to print or not print, but sure. distribution? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, if, if you're if you're a journalist starting out, even if, you know, if you're a college reporter, I mean, you definitely want to be the one generating ideas. If, if you're working any kind of beat, you know, even if it's just on your campus, if you're, you know, covering, I don't know, student council or student affairs, um, you're, you're just going to have a much better idea of, of what's new, what's coming down the pike, what's really, you know, unusual or newsworthy than, than your editor is typically. You know, not to say there aren't editors who have great story ideas, but, you know, your, your job as a reporter is, is to be the idea guy, to generate ideas, and you always have to have a new idea that you're pursuing. So usually, yeah, what typically happens is uh, you do a little bit of preliminary reporting. You, you sort of see that, you know, there is something here. These are the three people that we need to talk to. These are the places we need to go. You know, you want you want to say what's new, what's exclusive about this, and and if you do it right, typically the editor then gives you the green light, and uh, you know, hopefully, if if you're doing your job right, you won't have to deal with them again until uh, the story is written, and uh, and then the real hell begins of of you know hacking it apart and putting it back together. But uh, well, speaking of that, what what would you say about storytelling in that sense? Because we t- we talked about how stories are changing; they're getting shorter. They're 
more salacious at the beginning mm-hmm. or or the the clickbait that happens can you talk a little bit about what ingredients makes a good story that not only will have a good clickbait or not necessarily have good clickbait but that will be a story that you see news outlets picking up on the way the headline is written um, I, I almost think these things are, are more important now than, than they've ever been. I mean, the right headline, and, and BuzzFeed is the master of this. BuzzFeed, you know, j- you know, it can be a boring story about Hillary Clinton or, or Congress, but, but BuzzFeed will find the way to sort of, you know, word it that, that, that you click on it, that, uh, that it stokes your interest. And um, to be honest, at the AP, that's not maybe that wasn't always our our forte you know framing things in in the sexiest most novel original uh way but but now that's that's something we have to be aware of so yeah you have to come up with you know if the subject matter isn't exclusive or or original you have to find out you know a a different way of coming at it or you know what this is going to mean next week or next month or we, we talk a lot at the AP about chunky, chunky text. You know, people like five things you have to know about, uh, you know, the trade bill instead of, you know, Congress passes, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, break it up for people and, you know, tell them what are the five most interesting or salacious things or, you know, it's, it's definitely changing the way that we pitch and, and even put together stories. One recent story that you've written is a story about the NFL and that was recently got made the rounds about the concussions. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you got brought into that, saying whatever you can about how you got introduced to the story and your brief time as a sports writer? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. As a health writer, you typically, you know, there, there's a lot of things you can write about, but you typically, you know, you're writing about, uh, you know, medicine or hospitals or studies or, you know, medical controversies, this sort of thing. I, I, I never saw myself getting pulled into the world of football and NFL, but, but it's interesting and that's what keeps the job so fresh is, is there are these sort of intersections between sports and medicine. So that's what happened. You know, I've, I've been writing about healthcare for uh, almost a decade now, so my name's out there. And one day, um, I, I got a call from a source basically asking if, uh, you know, if I'd be interested in, in learning about what the NFL was doing about concussions. Um, and, uh, you know, the story, it was one of these stories that just had layers and layers because as you got into it more, um, you know, the NFL wanted to talk about, you know, the rule changes that they had made uh, that were reducing concussions. Uh you know, limiting the number of, of uh, kickoffs and, and returns and this sort of thing. But you really got to see why they were doing this now, what, what the, you know, what the motivation was. Turned out there there's a movie that's actually going to be starring Will Smith coming out in a few months. It's literally called Concussion. It's basically a sort of a takedown um, of, of the NFL and how maybe it uh, didn't do enough or tried to cover up some of the evidence about brain damage and concussions due to football. And then, you know, you look down a layer further and you see the NFL coming to Washington, going to Capitol Hill, lobbying people in Congress because, um, you know, obviously people in, in Congress can make life difficult for a huge business like, like the NFL. It had sports. 
It had medical sort of mystery, medical controversies. Uh, it had politics, uh, and it had Will Smith, uh, who you know everyone <laughs> loves Will Smith. So, and so um, you, they actually invited you up into the booth at, at MetLife Stadium. Is that correct? That's right. So what they wanted to talk about was was this rule change, and and this is significant. I'd say is that you know for the first time this season. There's an official high above the the football field who can call a medical timeout. So if he sees you know a guy who just got really knocked in the head and seems to be staggering around, uh, they can stop the game. And you know they've never been able to do that before. I don't think there's another professional sport that even has a medical timeout. We we got to go and be the first reporters to see how this system was going to work. When you wrote the article, did you think the NFL would enjoy? reading the article or did you think that they would be upset with your with your take i i had a feeling that it it wasn't going to be what what they were envisioning um what i liked about because i've read it what i've liked what i liked about it is the, the, the matter of fact way in which you stated the facts of kind of their long-term history with this issue surrounding concussions but also giving them a lot of props in terms of what they've done the strides they've made towards it, the facts speak for themselves and and the history speaks for itself. So I think that putting all of that into one kind of document and reading through it is, is really just kind of tells the story itself. They really do. I mean, there's, there's a real history and, and just real quickly, I mean, going back to the nineties, the NFL was made aware that, you know, concussions might cause brain damage and, you know, they basically, for years and years, for over a decade, you know, published this string of studies that said, nope, no risk of concussions, no risk of returning to play. You know, this just went on and on and on. And, uh, you know, to be honest, coming into this story, I'm not a huge football fan. I haven't followed it for years. Um, I almost wonder if maybe people would expect me not to have known that history to sort of have overlooked it. Mm. And that might have been a good thing for some of the people in that story. Yeah, of course, you got to do your homework and, and you got to find those things. I feel like the NFL, with its almost monopoly of <laughs> of any type of sports coverage within you know, ESPN, you turn on ESPN offseason and you see the NFL um, and it's the, the billions and billions of dollars that they're making. Uh, and I just learned recently that they have an antitrust waiver. <laughs> And that was back when the NFL was, you know, each team was making about a million dollars. Now, what you're t- looking at is teams that are make three, three or four billion dollars a year, and the, the the broadcast rights themselves top somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-seven billion dollars. Yeah. And so, why do they need a nonprofit status, and why do they need an antitrust waiver? And then at the same time, there's all the, it seems like there's all of these controversies that they could be wrapped up in. But at the same time, it seems like the, to me, this is all my opinion. The, the, right. the fan base just doesn't seemingly doesn't want to hear it. That's one question I have for you is, do you think, having written this story, do you think that it's a matter of the, and maybe you can't answer this, but it's a matter of the fan base not wanting to hear it or ignoring it because they like football so much? Or is it that really uh, the stories aren't really being presented to them in a way that they can really understand? That's a great question. The story of, of the concussion risk in football has been told masterfully, I would say, by in documentaries, by 
outlets like the New York Times, even ESPN, you know, which has a multi-billion dollar contract with the NFL, has, has covered this story really well, I would say, over, over the years. Why hasn't more changed? Why haven't more people paid attention? You know, I, I think football is, is just a religion. I mean, it's a religion for people. Where do you see the journalism field going? I, I can't imagine that you're that you're pleased in the way that in which it's gone in the last five years or so with with everything going to social and the clickbait and, and people not really absorbing <laughs> the content that you necessarily want them to um, or the stories that aren't really getting out. So do you think that's going to continue and get worse and worse and worse or... I try to be an optimist about, you know, the the trajectory of media and news. You know, I think about it this way. I mean, right now, you know, I, I don't know the stats, but we have tens of millions of people who get their news from sort of polit- politically polarized outlets like Fox News, like uh, MSNBC, where, you know, they really reduce news to, you know, two people yelling at each other. You know, there's no nuance. There's no shades of gray to the issues. That's that's sort of just, the, the, I guess, the format that that sells and and you know that that lends itself to it. I I still have to think that, you know, that when that sort of legacy audience and and I do think it's mainly, uh, you know, baby boomers, uh, when that legacy audience, uh, you know, eventually uh, will shrink. You know, we'll be left with people who who are more disparate uh, audience of people who get their their news from, you know, 10 or 15 websites, whether it's, you know, Gawker or, you know, Red State or, you know, there's just so many different points of view out there. And and I have to hope that, you know, from people having more of a choice in where they get their news, that maybe that will give people a little more sophisticated understanding of the news, of the country, of the politics and that, you know, 50 years from now, you know, perhaps people will actually be better informed than, than they are right now. Out there, what outlets would you say are getting it right and how they're placing the stories and the right kind of stories that are reaching an audience? Do you have any case studies or even what do you consume yourself? There's a website, Vox, which, you know, has a lot of buzz and, you know, it's a uh, um, Ezra Klein is behind it, Matthew Iglesias. And I think they are really careful about trying, for the most part, to write really unique, intelligent, informed takes on, on breaking news. You know, that that's where I get a lot of my news. That's what I find most interesting. Um, you know, I think the public will, will only be well served if, if those websites are successful. What advice would you give to somebody that wants to break into journalism that's either coming out of college or trying to change jobs from from another field? Do the opposite of what I did. You know, decide, you know, early, early on, you know, if you can in your college career, you know, what would your dream job be? You know, what is that going to look like? Do you want to be in TV? Do you want to be in print? You know, is there a particular, you know, person you look up to? And then, you know, figure out how you're going to get those internships. I mean, that's really, unfortunately, how how this whole game works. you got to get your foot in the door and uh, and then bug the heck out of your professors to either coach you on how to get those opportunities or writing references or reaching out to people they know. Um, I kind of let all that stuff slide until about junior, senior year, which... <laughs> Wasn't the greatest strategy, you know, it all worked out in the long run, but I, I probably could have had a smoother ride if I'd 
thought about some of that stuff. The show is recorded at Arlington Independent Media, or AIM. If you live in the Washington, D.C. metro area and you want to get involved in media production, check out arlingtonmedia.org. There are countless ways to get involved, like volunteering on programs, taking classes, and producing your own media projects. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. You can find new episodes of Media on the Radio. Visit arlingtonmedia.org.